you'll see bizarre policies being passed. And they'll usually come in the form of wealth redistribution schemes, tax the rich, helicopter money, universal basic income. I think I saw a headline today that universal basic income is coming to Canada. Universal basic income is universal basic theft, right? You're just taxing people, one group, and you're allocating this persistent income stream to another group. It's, It's institutionalized theft, just like taxation and inflation. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor and Thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard, hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money Show is 100% sponsor-based, so all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by In Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated exclusively to the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to wolfnyc.com to learn more about the program or apply. Again, that's WolfNYC, W-O-L-F-N-Y-C.com. Hi, Robert. How are you? I'm good, Steffi. How are you? Yeah, I'm fine. It's great to have you on the show. I remember the first time that we met and we discussed Bitcoin. It was actually July 2020, believe it or not. And wow. I remember the price of Bitcoin was just above $11,000. And I mean, here we are over 42000 and so many things has happened and more people actually woke up to what Bitcoin really is. And um, yeah, it is uh, it is very interesting, you know, to look back and, uh, you know, see how many things have changed and how also you have changed and how many things you have done in uh, those three years. Yeah, that's been, I can't believe it's been that long. Uh, I know March 2020 of that year, which is when the, the global pandemic started, uh, Bitcoin drew down as much as, I think, $3,800. And so here we sit three and a half years later, three years, nine months later, and we're at whatever the price is, 40-something thousand. So it's, you know, it's done, what, a 10x at least in, in yeah. under four years. So pretty astounding. And then if we spoke in July, I didn't even start the podcast until November 2020. And so now we are over 400 episodes into the What Is Money show. And that's been a heck of a journey. I was just telling you offline. It has been a way for me to go even further into the Bitcoin rabbit hole. I mean, the episodes we've been doing most recently, I've been just finished a 17 episode series with a guy talking about a book called The Twilight of Gold. And so we were looking at the historical detail of a gold standard and how it operated and using that as a prism through which to interpret what a Bitcoin standard world might look like, like the way the institutions would work and whatnot. This is brilliant. This is a great point to start. 
that on one side and then we're like again the bitcoin rabbit hole is so weird start asking what is money and you end up asking all these other foundational questions like what is truth what is beauty what is justice what is consciousness and so we have another series i'm working on that goes into the nature of mythology, the nature of storytelling, how it relates to human cognition, basically how we are the animal that tells stories. And I think Plato has a quote says something like, he who controls the past controls the present and he who controls the present controls the future. So like if you control the story or the narrative, you can direct humanity or the group in any way you want. And I think that's what we've seen a lot of in recent years is this struggle to maintain control over the narrative. And yeah. it's it's much more difficult in a world where they're basically every individual now can be a broadcaster. Whereas before the internet, before the digital age, there were very few information distribution channels. So it was much easier to control the narrative in the analog media world. But now that we have digital technology, Everyone can fire up a Zoom, start a podcast, do a Twitter space, etc. The centralized powers have a much more difficult time maintaining control over the narrative. And I think that is the core uh, reason we're seeing so much upheaval in the world, that the narrative that's been fed to us for a long time is now the control has been lost, to say the least. So yeah, anyway, it's a bit of a tangent, but it's been been quite the journey over the past three and a half years. Yeah, it is interesting what you just said about there are so many narratives now and it's like they clash, uh, they try to emerge. It's, it's not so easy to uh, win over. And uh, in a way, I'm thinking, because there are so many narratives, is that perhaps creating more chaos as mm -hmm. well. So uh, it's more difficult to drive the future of humanity in one direction. Do you think that's fair to say? Well, yeah, I think that... The whole idea of top-down central planning or, you know, what Noam Chomsky called manufacturing consent, it's just much more difficult in the digital age where independent voices can be amplified or they can broadcast themselves very easily. And so you get, you go from a, you know, one-to-many media distribution model to a many-to-many -many media distribution model. And so the idea of control itself or, or manufacturing the narrative becomes a lot less realistic uh, just as a result of, of technologies making bandwidth so inexpensive and so plentiful, right? We get, we get much more of a, like a, a public square kind of effect where people can come together, a town square type effect where people can come together, you can hear multiple viewpoints and from that, you can assimilate some semblance of truth rather than having a narrative that is prepackaged, predetermined, and typically propagandistic fed to you from a central power. So it's 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 fascinating, and um, I think people's you know our minds are a reflection of that media reality. So what are we going through? Right, people are awakening. Conspiracy theorists are now becoming much more inside the Overton window, where it was traditionally these people. Were considered to be at the fringes. Well, I'd say the media, the conspiracy theorists have gone like undefeated in the past three years. So people are starting to wake up to uh, realities that they may have not not wanted to accept before. Yeah. So let's go back to how the world is going to look like with a Bitcoin standard. First of all, what are the narratives to get there, and then how it's going to look like? Yeah. So the narrative. This is. The, this is interesting about Bitcoin as well. Obviously, there's no, it's a decentralized organization. So when we look at, say, like a uh, the state, right? The state is a centralized power. There's one group deciding what everyone else will do. And they're, they're imposing that viewpoint through coercion or the threat of coercion. Bitcoin is like the opposite of that. It's just, it's purely opt-in, opt-out. No one's coercing anyone to play. And it's the emergent decisions of those individuals participating that becomes Bitcoin, right? So for instance, the 21 million hard cap, that's not, it's not a rule necessarily. It's just people acting in their own self-interest that participate in the Bitcoin network. Well, as it turns out, a fixed money supply is most advantageous to savers. So if you're going to use money and you want it to retain purchasing power across time, the best possible money supply you could have would be one that is fixed and unchangeable, which means you can't be diluted, right? No one can print money. No one can de debase the purchasing power you have saved in the money. 
So there's not necessarily, when we say there's a narrative, I guess we have to be careful with the language because there's not any group pushing that narrative. There's not like a, the CEO or the C-suite of Bitcoin like pushing, saying 21 million is the standard. It's just all of the participants in the network choosing what's in their individual self-interest. And the emergent outcome of that is Bitcoin has a fixed supply of 21 million, for instance. This would be, again, very different from the Fed saying, oh, you know, reading the tea leaves, the economy, you know, whatever indicators they're looking at, we need to print this much money or we need to reduce the print this much money or we need to change interest rates, et cetera. That is much more of a centrally promulgated narrative. So there's one group trying to basically rationalize or justify uh, the actions they're taking in the marketplace, which in the case of central banking is market manipulation and price setting or price fixing. There's none of that in Bitcoin. So when you ask what narratives get us to a Bitcoin standard world, uh, actually, you know, what's interesting here is the word authority. So the word authority shares an etymological root with the word author, right? Like to author a book, to write a book. And so I think what we're talking about is a world in which centralized authority is less capable of projecting power by virtue of people having recourse to something like Bitcoin. And in that world, in a Bitcoin standard world, it's going to be one in which is much more self-authored by the individuals, as I just described with, with um, the 21 million hard cap basically being an emergent property of, of people's individual choices. So I think that the, the narrative that gets us there, it's something we've it's just human freedom, right? It's like to the extent that you want to preserve purchasing power across time and be able to build something for yourself or your family and and keep the fruits of your labor, you know, this is something we've been talking about since the year 1215 when King John signed the Magna Carta and he said that the scope of government was to preserve life, liberty, and inviolable property. We just never had the implementation of property that couldn't be violated. And Bitcoin is the best implementation of that ideal we've ever had. So what narratives get us there? I don't know. It's individuals will choose it for themselves. Obviously, there's a lot of people talking about Bitcoin, trying to describe it by way of analogy, digital gold, the internet of money, inviolable private property, as I just said. But I don't know which narratives are going to resonate with which people. But I do know that people are self-interested and Bitcoin appeals to the self-interest of the individual to propagate itself into the world. And this is why I think it's unstoppable. I've, I've described Bitcoin as a, a vortex of positive incentives that nobody knows how to turn off. You either adapt or you you die, so to speak. But, but Robert, like, how can we defeat central power when... Let's look at the, at the AI space, for example, where individuals are giving away lots of data right? And who is benefiting from this data are those centralized organizations. And we don't even know. We just give away data for free. And all this data, they fuel into some kind of um, very scary future where you don't know where your data go. And uh, there is so much things are going to be built. If you think about robotics, if you think about, you know, where AI is going, that in a way, we feel that we are free to do stuff. But at the same time, they are taking us from our head. They are taking away our data and, and the centralization become more powerful. So let's leave the AI space for a moment and, and let's look at Bitcoin, where there is this um, willingness to be free and be in power over your money. But at the same time, th there is the central power on the other side. How we can uh, defeat the central power? Well, one thing that really works in the favor of decentralization is that centralized power structures tend to be self-defeating in the long run. So that's interesting. A centralized, specific, if we just focus on the state, which I think is the main problem here, um, that you could say the state or central banking, I mean, really it's, it's a, a central bank enabled state that is the yeah. problem. Because when a government or when a state can print money, there is no longer any check on its growth. It can literally print its own growth, right? It doesn't matter if it's if the new bureaucratic bodies and solutions it's creating, it doesn't matter if they're profitable or not. The state will just use the central bank to print money, steal purchasing power from citizens, and continue to grow. And indeed, when you look at 
the size of the U.S. federal government, for instance, since we've gone off the gold standard in 1971, it has absolutely exploded. Like the number of federal government employees relative to even individual state employees or private market actors, the ratio has gone way up. Because again, you're printing money. You can print economic growth effectively. So it's sucking the economic energy out of private industry and pumping it into pub the public sector, which is in this case, U.S. federal government. How do we defeat that or how do we change that? Well, you have to make it more difficult to expropriate purchasing power through taxation and inflation. You have to you have to reduce state revenues to reduce the prevalence of the state as a business model. And this is why Bitcoin is such a magic bullet in a lot of ways, right? It's people that are holding savings in fiat currency today now have an option. I don't need to hold my liquid net worth in US dollars, for instance, because I have recourse to a technology, a savings technology like Bitcoin, which is a money that cannot be printed, cannot be counterfeited. The savings that I put there cannot be debased arbitrarily through monetary policy or other interventions. So in the long run, and again, this is touched on in the, the book written in 1997 titled The Sovereign Individual, you would expect that as people come to this realization that you no longer have to be the victim of central bank or state monetary policy, you can hold a sovereign money, right? This sovereign individual, they called this anonymous digital cyber cash. Today, we would call this Bitcoin. Although Bitcoin's not anonymous, but at layer two, it is. That's something we get into later. People don't like to be robbed, right? People don't like to be stolen from. No one wants to hold an asset that someone else can produce arbitrarily and with no cost. Uh, if, you know, for instance, if you held a Babe Ruth rookie baseball card, right? You had one of a hundred. If some other person figured out how to counterfeit those things and the supply went to 200, 300, 400, that would debase the value of your card, right? So you wouldn't want to hold the thing if you knew someone could arbitrarily print or counterfeit versions of it. The same thing is true with money. No one wants to hold the money that can be printed. We're all just sort of forced into it by necessity pre-Bitcoin. So in this world where people have recourse to Bitcoin, inflation goes away in the long run as a revenue option for the state. As it uses inflation, as it prints money as a revenue source for itself, the victims of that inflation are gradually going to awaken to the scam and basically choose to dump their local fiat and hold something that can't be printed. Once that happens, all the state has left as a revenue option is explicit taxation. It can no longer print money, which is great, right? Now the, uh, a state would be at least uh, held within the confines of its own profit and loss statement. You could no longer print money to paper over economic losses and therefore have limitless overgrowth of the state, right? It's, it, you would put limits on its growth by virtue of taking away the money printer. Further, those people that have moved savings into Bitcoin now have their purchasing power contained in a hyper-portable, easily concealable asset, right? The most portable and concealable asset on the face of the earth. You can put it on your brain, you can put it on your computer, you can put it on a sheet of paper. Uh, you, you can move it at the speed of light. It's a digital native asset. You can move it anywhere in the world at the speed of light without any jurisdictional restrictions whatsoever. That world in which inflation is gone and people's purchasing power is stored in this hyper-portable, hyper-concealable asset, that world makes taxation much more difficult to impose. Because if a state is, is not treating you well, right? If you don't like the level of services you're receiving for the tax rate, that's being imposed upon you, well, then you'll vote with your feet and or your wallet and you'll go to a jurisdiction that treats you better. So I think it is that dynamic that encourages states post-Bitcoin to become more accountable to the preferences of their customers. And that is how I think we quote unquote defeat centralized power. It's just by giving power to the people to vote with their feet or wallet to go to the places that treat them best, which then creates an economic competition among states to treat, to actually listen to customers, right? What a radical idea. Yes. Satisfy your customers instead of treating them like milk cows. That's the world that I think Bitcoin takes us into. What about if the banks are going to start to buy Bitcoin, accumulate? Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. So you have to consider what a bank is, right? So a bank traditionally is a custodial institution. They originally were holding gold and issuing paper derivatives on top of the gold called banknotes that would become currency um, that allowed people to 
store gold in one place and yet transact in something that was more portable. There's no problem, I think, with if banks are buying Bitcoin, the ownership concentration of Bitcoin has nothing to do with its with its consensus rules. So if Satoshi himself returned today with a million Bitcoin and further, let's say he's been buying more Bitcoin since he disappeared and he has 2 million Bitcoin, 3 million, your number, it doesn't matter. Not even Satoshi could change the rules of Bitcoin. He couldn't change the block time. Uh, he couldn't change the block size. He couldn't change the 21 million hard cap. If he had 10 million Bitcoin, he couldn't do those things. So it doesn't matter. The ownership concentration doesn't matter at all. Now, what I think with banks buying Bitcoin, you are going to see more people getting scammed potentially, as we've seen with the FTX scam. And, you know, there's there have been dozens and dozens of crypto exchange scams up until this point. When banks start to buy and custody customer Bitcoin, you're going to have the same type of incentive trap playing out there. Uh, now, they're regulated, right? So you would expect to see less of that. However, it, it doesn't quite um, matter because if, if someone can gain access to that Bitcoin and move it, then they can engage in an irreversible transaction. So the, the, the threat of regulation on that is very impotent. It's not like they can detect the fraud and then reverse the transaction. This is why responsibility you know, is a paramount in Bitcoin. As we always say, not your keys, not your coins. Yeah. So for those bank customers, like especially after an ETF goes live or something, and they say, oh, I can just click here and buy Bitcoin. Yeah. I've got Bitcoin right there in my bank account. They're going to think, oh, I bought Bitcoin. I have Bitcoin, but they don't have it. They have a Bitcoin IOU from their bank who can default on that IOU at any time, or that bank can be nationalized, right? The state can just steal it along with all the Bitcoin held on deposit for customers. People think that's radical in the Western world, especially the, de the developed Western world, but this just happens all the time across human history and it happens all the time in emerging economies. So you have to treat Bitcoin differently. You have to take it very seriously. You have to self-custody this asset. You cannot trust custodians to hold it on your behalf. And that's going to that's a paradigm that I think is going to take some time for people to absorb in the West. If you are a business owner or manager, you should know these three numbers. 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, which allows you to streamline accounting, financial management, human resources, and more. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days rather than weeks, and to drive down cost. And finally, one, because your business is one of a kind. So with NetSuite, you get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. NetSuite is everything you need all in one place. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash whatismoney. That's netsuite.com slash whatismoney to get your free KPI checklist. Again, netsuite.com slash whatismoney. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technologies. iCoin has released a free software update for all existing wallet holders that includes a secure messaging feature called Chamber. With the Chamber upgrade, you can send text messages with all the security benefits of a cold device. With wallet-to-wallet -wallet encrypted messaging, there is zero chance of a message being decrypted by a snooping third party. Chamber's encrypted messages can only be created and read on an iCoin wallet, which means messages are never seen in plain text on a hot device. You can use any messaging platform to send chamber encrypted messages. Even if the messaging channel is compromised, your messages will remain uncrackable. You can now generate and store your message encryption keys on a cold device. This means you become the central authority and your encryption keys are never seen on a network connected device or kept in cloud storage by a third party. So why not protect your private communications like you protect your Bitcoin private keys? Pick up a few iCoin chambers today for friends, family, and coworkers. With the iCoin Chamber, your privacy is built right in. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. It is interesting because I think the way the Bitcoin is seen 
uh, right now is not exactly what you are describing. People still see as a as an investment assets, as a trading proxy, and especially when you mention the ETF. If that is going to get approved next year, probably we are going to see more institution getting into Bitcoin, maybe more than retail investor. And why those institutions are getting into Bitcoin? That's kind of like a question that you know we should ask ourselves: is what is they long, you know, they uh, they motive? Right? Are they just going to? Invest is just an investment decision, and then they are going to sell. And I mean, probably uh, Michael Saylor is one of uh, one of, or maybe they one that actually see that as uh, is more than a long term investment. Is uh, you know the way to change uh, your wealth. But all the rest of those institutions, I don't think they are there yet. Well. I could not ever speak to what are the motives of every individual or institution that is buying Bitcoin because that would be very arrogant. How could I possibly know the motives of everyone? But again, every organization, every institution, every nation state is comprised of individuals ultimately. So while it might be useful to think about what is this institution going to do or that institution going to do, I think the to get a true high resolution picture of the matter you have to think in terms of individuals. And at the end of the day, individuals are organisms, right? We want to consume Why? more. We want to consume. Yeah. And so what savings does is allows us to store the fruits of our labor in the present in a way that allows us to consume over time into the future. So you need savings, right? You need what how they would say this on Wall Street is you need a strong balance sheet, right? You need high... Uh, asset to liability ratios. You want a lot of equity on the balance sheet. You want to have purchasing power, essentially. This is the the lifeblood and vitality of an organization. It's how much purchasing power and capital, uh, you know, market capitalization it can store, right? This is how we evaluate the most successful companies in the world. Which ones are the biggest? Well, Apple has the highest market capitalization, I believe. I don't know if that's changed. Uh, we would say Apple's one of the most successful companies in history because it has, if it liquidated all of its assets, it could purchase the most stuff. So what we're saying with what is the motivation for individuals or institutions buying Bitcoin, it's self-interest. It's purely economic self-interest, right? You are trying to grow and you are trying to maximize the possibility of future consumption, which is, again, if you say this in an institutional way, you're trying to maximize shareholder value. You need really good assets to do that. You need good savings technologies. And pre-Bitcoin, companies used government bonds, right? Government bonds are basically never defaulted upon because the government can just print money to pay off the bonds. So you have little to no default risk. And five, six years ago, they had no, they had yield, whereas now we're in kind of the zero interest rate environment where there's low to no yield on government bonds. Individuals, and institutions want to earn purchasing power and then store it in something that cannot debase, cannot be debased or taken. You understand this at the individual level, right? Like you want savings as an individual, you want some liquid savings so that in the event of some uncertainty happening to you, you get sick or your partner gets sick or you lose your job or whatever car accident, you have some nest egg, you have a safety net to fall back on. That's what Bitcoin offers. And it offers it in a way, in a fundamentally new way, right? There's, It's the first and only fixed supply asset in human history. So it cannot be debased at all. You can always issue more government bonds. You can always issue, you can always mine more gold. You can always print more fiat currency. You know, a good proxy for Bitcoin in this respect was real estate. A lot of people would park their wealth in real estate because as they say, invest in land because they're not making any more of it, yeah. which is sort of true, but we do actually make more land because we build up, right? We build skyscrapers and condos. Uh, in the Middle East, they actually do build more land. They build islands. So real estate was a good proxy for this conservation of purchasing power across time, but Bitcoin is, has perfected it, right? We, you're actually, no one ever is actually going to make any more Bitcoin because it's algorithmically fixed at 21 million. So I think that um, the institutions 
whatever their motivation may be, I think you could boil it down to self-interest or maximizing shareholder value. The playbook that Michael Saylor has been running is only going to become more appealing as we go further into a Bitcoin bull market. You know, he's already up, I think, $2 billion on his Bitcoin position, something like that. Is it $6 billion he's purchased and he's up $2 billion in profit? We're not even in a bull market yet. Bitcoin hasn't even broken its prior all-time high. So when Bitcoin is at, say, $100,000 or north in six-figure territory, the unrealized profits that MicroStrategy is going to have, the unrealized gain gains is the actual account that MicroStrategy is going to have on its balance sheet is going to be astronomical. And that is going to be a giant billboard and incentive for other corporate treasurers and CEOs to adopt a similar strategy, which is be profitable, leverage your balance sheet, the business balance sheet to take on intelligent debt and buy more Bitcoin, put your excess profits, anything you don't need to keep for working capital into Bitcoin. And that's it. You operate a business that satisfies consumer wants. You do it profitably. You leverage the balance sheet to acquire the strongest form of private property in human history, which is Bitcoin. And you just rinse and repeat. Once enough businesses start to emulate this, I think it's going to be a, just a mimetic tidal wave. You'll see everyone in the world start to add Bitcoin, even just incrementally at first, right? Maybe they hold 100% cash reserves today, USD reserves. They'll switch to 90-10, you know, 90% USD, 10% BTC. And then it will incrementally uh, tick up from there. And by the end of this long run, you have all fiat currencies hyperinflated to zero. You have every individual and institution in the world holding Bitcoin. And Bitcoin is the, the monetary standard of the world. So sounds radical, but uh, as was said about how do people go bankrupt? Well, it happens gradually and then suddenly, uh, which is also how currencies hyperinflate, right? They inflate slowly for a long time and then eventually uh, certain things happen that cause them to go into a hyperinflation. And I think we're going to see a similar dynamic with what many people call hyper-Bitcoinization, which is Bitcoin eating all the money in the world. What are you expecting from uh, the next bull market? In terms of Price? Not just price, adoption. Well, okay. So those who live by the crystal ball are bound to eat glass. So caveat mTOR for everything that I will say that is forward looking. I have no idea, right? I have no idea what the price is going to be. I have no idea how many people are going to adopt it. Um, but I will try to say some things that I think make sense. I'll, I would expect to continue to see Bitcoin being adopted in emerging markets more quickly than in the developed world because people in emerging markets don't need to go listen to the What Is Money podcast for 400 hours to understand why Bitcoin matters. All you have to say to them is, it's money that the government can't print or manipulate or steal. And they're like, sign me up, right? If I live in Argentina and I've lived through five hyperinflations in 60 years, I think is the number. That one sentence will sell me on Bitcoin, right? I, I don't need any other explanations of how it works and what it does and blah, blah, blah. You're just like, you need an option to get out of that recurrent scam that you and your family have been in for the past six decades. Whereas in the developed world, we're spoiled, right? The banks sort of work mostly, as long as you're not protesting in Canada. Capital markets work. Your stuff doesn't get stolen so much. The US dollar is never hyperinflated, right? It's been around for 110 years and it hasn't hyperinflated yet. So there's this recency bias that, well, everything works pretty much. It has worked for 110 years, so I would expect it to continue to work for 110 years. But again, what did we just say? Well, hyperinflation happens gradually, then suddenly. Obviously, or inflation has accelerated on the US dollar. We've seen, I mean, all the prices of things, I'm a, I'm a big fan of red meat. The price of beef has more than tripled in the past three years. It, I mean, that is, that's a massive price move. It, it, it probably took... 30 years to triple before that, you know? So it's accelerating. <laughs> US dollar hyperinflation is closer now than ever, which is, I mean, that's actually a silly thing to say. No matter what fiat currency you're in, hyperinflation is always closer now than ever because every fiat currency ends in hyperinflation. So every day that passes by, you're one day closer to the inevitable outcome, which is hyperinflation. 
So although people in the U.S. might think that they do, I would say 99% of Americans think that sounds absolutely crazy. The most desired asset in the world could actually hyperinflate and fail. I think it is a, it's a foregone conclusion. It's definitely going to happen. It's just a matter of, of when. So I would expect adoption to continue to be more quick in the developing world than the developed world. I would also expect states to become increasingly financially desperate. So as inflation works less and less, because you keep diluting the value of money, people are exiting, the fiat, they're selling the fiat currency to move into Bitcoin or gold or whatever else to protect themselves from anticipated future inflation. This actually accelerates the inflation of that currency which drives wealth disparity, misallocation of capital, causes all these economic problems inside of any country that, that is affected by it, you'll see bizarre policies being passed. And they'll usually come in the form of wealth redistribution schemes, tax the rich, helicopter money, universal basic income. I think I saw a headline today that universal basic income is coming to Canada. Universal basic income is universal basic theft, right? You're just- yeah. Axing people, one group, and you're allocating this persistent income stream to another group. It's it's institutionalized theft, just like taxation and inflation. And all of those measures will be self-defeating for all the reasons we've talked about. But further, the people that are getting taxed, specifically the rich, they're going to start to evaluate their options of how do I insulate myself from these wealth redistribution schemes? And when I look on the financial landscape, there's only one ultimate answer to that. Like, well, if you want to put your purchasing power somewhere that it can't be stolen, can't be printed, can't be debased, can't be confiscated, can't be subjected to capital controls, et cetera, well, then you have to look at Bitcoin. And so again, incrementally, they'll start putting some of their wealth in Bitcoin as a means of protecting themselves from these tax the rich policies. And then all of a sudden, this is like the two poles of Bitcoin adoption. You have people that are just trying to survive, right? Survive hyperinflation or survive government financial oppression of whatever sort, or to leave, right? To circumvent capital controls. You're trying to get out of China with some money. Well, you can only take 50,000 US out of China per year, I think, according to their current capital controls. If you put that in Bitcoin, you don't have to suffer that restriction. So at one end of the spectrum, you have the poor adopting Bitcoin to protect themselves. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have the rich adopting Bitcoin to protect themselves from the wealth redistribution policies of the increasingly financially desperate state. And I think that's, it just sort of works its way in from there, right? Towards the middle. How, you know, what does that mean? That means more people adopting Bitcoin, holding Bitcoin, saving a Bitcoin. That means a higher Bitcoin price. I can't give you numbers on that though. Like I have no idea. There's, it's rumored that Roughly 100 million people worldwide today hold Bitcoin. I think each bull market probably increases that number by three to four fold. Yeah. And then the price roughly reflects that. You know, you see price will do some crazy run up, a few hundred thousand dollars, and then it will collapse 80%. But even after it collapses 80%, it'll be a factor of two or three times higher than the previous high. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's that's the way I see that playing out. So let's look at everything that is happening in the Bitcoin ecosystem. Like there is a lot of experimentation going on. Layer two, ordinals. You mentioned before about building on the top of land, right? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what they developers are trying to do on Bitcoin successfully, mm -hmm. unsuccessfully with lots of challenges. But this is what is happening. I would like to know your opinion on it. And also, what kind of value you think is adding to Bitcoin, if any? Yeah, so to tie this into an earlier point, I said that Bitcoin's not anonymous, even though the sovereign individual called, it predicted the emergence of anonymous digital cyber cash. So to explain why that is, there's a fundamental trade-off that Satoshi made, basically, in the, in the design of Bitcoin, and that is... In order to have this fixed money supply of 21 million, it was impossible to have that confirmed and set in stone at layer one and also have layer one be a perfectly anonymous transaction layer. The technical specifics of why that is are a bit beyond me, but suffice it to say, 
you can't have fixed money supply and anonymous transaction ledger at the same layer. Mm -hmm. uh, now, there's other things like Monero, right? Monero is this privacy-focused cryptocurrency. Yeah. It, it did the other opposite trade-off, right? It, it optimized for privacy, but now you can't really verify the supply. So you don't know how well it functions as a store of value. So that was a conscious design trade-off by Satoshi. There's also, there's another trade-off at Layer 1 too, and that there's all of this work being done, right? It's called proof of work. So there's this massive energy and capital expenditure that goes into the mining process of Bitcoin to verify the transactions that are occurring at layer one. And this creates a situation where Bitcoin has very slow transaction throughput. So you couldn't have very strong network security and very high transaction throughput at layer one either, right? This is another design uh, trade-off that Satoshi made. So layer two, which the most successful layer two, Bitcoin layer two technology today is the Lightning Network is a solution, I think, to both of these. So layer two uses uh, a certain type of smart contract, which is basically uh, an automa automated commercial software. Individuals are funding Lightning channels with Bitcoin, and then they can move the Bitcoin through this web of interrelations, basically, of the, the web a web of these smart contracts. So you could think of this like every time you open a lightning channel between two parties, it's kind of like having an abacus, right? Which is, if you've ever seen the little thing with the bars and the beads, you slide back and forth. Like we both set up a bar between us. We both fund it with a Bitcoin or an amount of Bitcoin, which is like equivalent to a bead or beads on either end. And then we just slide those beads back and forth. And then you can be connected to other people in the same way. And I can send a transaction through, you know, six, 10, 15, a hundred parties, whatever it may be. And then I can move Bitcoin through this network without having to transact through layer one, which is very slow and very expensive and not anonymous, as we just said. So layer, and you can do that because there's these jumps. Uh, it's much more anonymous. It's not perfectly anonymous, but it's much more uh, privacy friendly, let's say at layer two than it is at layer one. So at layer two on something like Lightning, you get both higher assurances of privacy and you get much more transaction throughput. Okay, what are ordinals? Um, I don't have a, a, you know, this is not something that I read up on. I'm not like super into this debate because I ultimately think it doesn't matter. Bitcoin is a permissionless system, which means anyone can use it for any reason whatsoever. You can even copy and paste all of Bitcoin and go start your own Bitcoin, right? Which this is what shit coins are. This is what crypto is. It's like copy copy and paste versions of Bitcoin uh, that people are trying to change it or, or do something else with it. As a permissionless system, I don't make any judgments about who uses Bitcoin for what. Ordinals appear to be, and again, without having done much research on this, uh, people are basically creating NFTs or other tokens on Bitcoin using these other higher order layer technologies, and then they're selling them, right? So it's basically like building shit coins on top of Bitcoin. Okay. I personally would never buy a shit coin built on top of Bitcoin because it's a shit coin and it's not Bitcoin. I just, I only want to, I only want to own the money that nobody can print. Now, those that are using Bitcoin to build and sell shit coins. They're just creating more demand for Bitcoin block space. So this is part of the reason why fees, transaction fees at layer one have been so high. And this is creating an incentive for further development at layer two. So when transactions are expensive at layer one, well, then there's an incentive to build out layer two, right? Which has, as we said earlier, very cheap, very efficient in terms of throughput and more privacy-friendly transactions. So in somewhat of a weird way, and this is a big contentious topic in the Bitcoin community, a lot of people condemning these things morally, which, you know, have at it. I don't really care. In this strange way, it's good for Bitcoin. Like even though Bitcoin is being used to sell shit coins, which aren't good for anyone, they're just scams, basically. The very fact that there is demand being registered for Bitcoin block space, even if it's for nefarious or immoral purposes, is still good for Bitcoin because it induces 
or incentivizes further development at layer two. And the more layer two the network proliferates, the more usable and transactable and private Bitcoin becomes. So there's a weird saying in Bitcoin that I think takes a long time to absorb, but I actually think it's true. Everything is good for Bitcoin, which is so strange. It's like you can attack it and Bitcoin gets hardened through hostility. You can try to fork it as they did in 2017 with Bitcoin Cash. Well, Bitcoin Core survives and its decentralization is um, further cemented. Bitcoin becomes stronger. You can make it. You can make Bitcoin mining illegal in China, right? The most authoritarian regime in human history outlaws Bitcoin mining. What happens? Bitcoin mining becomes more decentralized. The network becomes more robust. So I, it's I struggle to think of anything that's bad for Bitcoin. And so I think Ordinals is just another case of that. Do you think there is a need to inscribe things on the Bitcoin blockchain, which is kind of what Ordinals does and you know, this idea that you have got something and you want to inscribe it on an immutable blockchain that will live there forever. Yeah, I think there's a number of use cases one could think of, right? You could you have certain legal documents or title documents or a will and testament. You know, any piece of data that you don't want to ever be deleted could fit into a use case like that. Will people use it for that? I don't know. Is that, again, it's a permissionless system, so it's not for me to judge. It's for people to go out and experiment and use it as they please. But I could see, you know, there's a lot of people like to say that the internet never forgets. Sort of true, but things can also be removed from the internet, you know, especially by centralized powers. Let's say they've removed certain pieces of information that maybe didn't suit certain narratives. But Bitcoin and data on the Bitcoin time chain actually never forgets, right? It's permanent. It's a permanent inscribing of data on, on a time chain that no one can break, disrupt, erase, amend. So to the extent that you have some piece of precious information that you want to protect and imbue with this immortal, this immortality, then yeah, I could see Bitcoin being used for that purpose. And who am I to judge, right? It's again, it's a permissionless system. Use it however you want. One of my highest health priorities is keeping my brain in top shape. To take care of my brain power, I do many things such as striving to read, write, exercise, and meditate daily. One of the latest tools in my brain power toolkit is MindLab Pro. MindLab Pro is a nootropic supplement that is scientifically proven to enhance your brain power. When I take MindLab Pro, my mind feels like it has a better grip on the world, my thinking is more lucid, and the articulation of my speech is much more clear. MindLab Pro has been tested in rigorous, double-blind, placebo-controlled human trials and has been proven to enhance brain power for users in every age group. MindLab Pro is an advanced formulation of 11 nootropic ingredients and is backed by research from 1,473 human trials conducted over a period of 32 years. So if you're looking to start enhancing your brain power, MindLab Pro is an excellent solution. Go to mindlabpro.com slash breedlove to start enhancing your brain power today. Again, that's mindlabpro.com slash breedlove. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a crowdfunding platform for paying medical expenses in lieu of an insurance policy. CrowdHealth recently announced that it is integrating Lightning payments with Breeze's Lightning SDK. In the United States, we spend more than twice the average amount of money on healthcare than other developed nations. Medical costs are one of the leading causes of bankruptcy in the United States, and it is not a secret that the medical system in the U.S. has many, many issues. The CrowdHealth model is based on offering an alternative to the conventional insurance policy at a cheaper price point. For a monthly membership fee of $50, CrowdHealth will negotiate medical bills to get the cheapest price possible, help locate healthcare providers, offer access to their member crowdfunding service, and more. Prior to the Breeze integration, CrowdHealth had been functioning over traditional fiat payment rails, which introduced unnecessary transaction fees and delays in settlement. By integrating Lightning payments into the CrowdHealth business model, payments between members can now be made with near zero fees and with final settlement occurring in mere seconds. So go to joincrowdhealth.com breedlove today to sign up. I'm going to go a bit off topic now, but uh, I want to ask you, are you scared of uh, AI developments? I don't think... I think we first have to talk about the term AI, artificial intelligence, 
the only fear that would be asso- that anyone would associate with artificial intelligence, I think, is artificial general intelligence. Right? We create a sentient machine, so we 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 create a new form of life, and the fear would be something like the narrative from the Terminator movies, right? This is a Skynet. This is the robot that wants to kill everyone or enslave everyone or whatever. Um, I think we are way far from artificial general intelligence. I don't know that's even possible. Um, so I think any fears related to that are overblown or possibly even unwarranted, like to the extent that we never create sentient intelligence, you know, that would be humans basically playing God. I I just don't see, you never want to bet against human ingenuity or technology because we've advanced so far. But from my very limited knowledge about artificial intelligence and from the me leaning on the people that I trust in this space to have more knowledge than me, we are many decades away from artificial general intelligence at best. So no, I'm not afraid of AI. I also think that the current iteration of AI that we have, it's it's improperly named. These are really just large language models, right? So this is a more sophisticated form of search. This is good. This is good for human productivity, right? This is is an amazing tool. If we can have a system that allows us to search, synthesize, assimilate data more quickly, well, then that lets all knowledge-based workers become more productive. So accountants, attorneys, scientists, etc., they can do their jobs more quickly, more effectively, more economically. Any increase to human productivity is an increase to the purchasing power of savers. So if you're saving in something that can be debased, like Bitcoin or gold, then this would be a boon to your purchasing power. Now, it could create some, what uh, what the guy, Schumpter, he called creative destruction, right? Certain jobs could get eliminated or mitigated as a result, and people in those sectors will be forced to develop new skills and go find new jobs. But that is not a bad thing. And that's nothing to be afraid of, even if it's you losing your job. I mean, I know this is probably hard for those people to accept, but this is actually a good thing, right? When when the Italian shoemaker that makes all these leather shoes by hand sees the factory coming in down the street, he's thinking, oh, this is terrible, right? I'm going to lose my business. This factory can make 10,000 shoes per hour, whereas I can make 10 per hour or whatever. This is the end of the world. But what is it actually? It's a dramatic gain in human productivity and prosperity, the fact that we can produce these things in a factory. And so although that shoemaker might be out of work, it's, it's a creatively destructive process. There's actually more productivity being unlocked as a result of the factory's existence, um, even though it comes at the expense of the local guy, the local shoemaker. Um, obviously that's just sort of, uh, an example. Um, and you know, clearly some people may still prefer handmade shoes okay. over factory made shoes, et cetera. So I was just going to say that it's not a perfect analogy, but what's another one? The candle maker hates the light bulb, right? It's like these technologies that disrupt the existing order of things can be scary, but to the extent that they succeed in the free market and people are buying them willingly, well then. People are buying them because they solve a particular problem. And typically that problem is becoming more productive, right? How do I consume more with less effort? So I think AI is just another one of those. It's a it's a major productivity unlock. And I don't think there's anything to be afraid of. Um, again, I wouldn't call it AI though. I'd say that right now it's, it's large language models, um, which really, if you thought Google search was a productivity enhancer... Just wait till you engage with a large language model. It's even yeah. more effective. Yeah. It's making just more creative. Yeah. It's more liberty. It's more freedom, right? You don't have to, with every technological advance that increases our productivity, we can accomplish greater results with less efforts. And, and we have more time for other things, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So going back to Bitcoin, I just uh, want to ask you, let's uh, think about somebody that is not, hasn't got yet into Bitcoin, hasn't got that holy moment and has understood what Bitcoin is. What would be your message? Someone that doesn't 
understand the value proposition of Bitcoin? I think somebody new to Bitcoin because, mm. you know, we, we are seeing there are still lots of people they haven't got into the space and it's not they are against or it, they just don't know. They just, uh, you know, still have to be introduced to Bitcoin. Right. What would be your message? So there's two ways I could take this. One, you obviously have to curate your message for your audience always. So if the individual I'm talking to understands that money printing is bad or money printing is theft, if they have that understanding in their worldview already, then you can just say, Bitcoin is money nobody can print. And then boom, that's like, that should be enough if you understand that money printing is bad. However, I don't think most people understand that. Most people tend to think, thanks to the past 100 plus years of Keynesian economic propaganda and programming, most people think that money printing a little bit is necessary. We like prices to go up a little bit over time. They don't understand that it's just the currency counterfeiting cartel stealing from them in the form of price increases. So if I'm talking to that individual, I would tell them that Bitcoin is like an insurance policy on the legacy financial system. So that the more fragile that financial system becomes, the more valuable Bitcoin is as an insurance policy. And so that is a little more obscure and abstract perhaps, but I think even people that don't understand finance, economics, money whatsoever, they can detect when some things are awry, right? Like in 2008, you could tell that there was something wrong with the financial system, whether you knew anything about it or not. So that would at least equip people to have somewhat of an intuitive grasp of Bitcoin's value, that to the extent things don't feel right or they feel shaky in the traditional financial system, uh, that it might be smart to own a policy, an insurance policy, and this in the case of Bitcoin, obviously this is just an analogy. Bitcoin is not an actual insurance policy. But when the traditional financial system creaks, cracks, crumbles, or collapses, this quote unquote insurance policy should pay off, right? And the, and the reason to get a little bit more into the reasoning behind that is because again, the legacy financial system is premised on Keynesian economics. And the, the core supposition of Keynesian economics is that you can print money to alleviate economic scarcity, which is absolutely fucking insane. If you think that printing new pieces, green pieces of paper can put food in your mouth or put a roof over your head, then you're insane. And that is exactly what the fiat currency monetary paradigm is based on, is that pseudoscientific, that pseudoscientific academic bullshit philosophy, right? That you can print money and alleviate economic scarcity. So every time there's an economic crisis of any kind, what is the policy response? Print money, right? Oh, there was a there was a recession, a crisis, a this, a that. Scarcity has gone up. What are we going to do? Print money. So in knowing that the, the standard, the modus operandi of the Keynesian economic model is to print money every time there's a crisis, which further, if you understand Austrian economics, that's actually sowing the seeds for the next crisis, making it bigger and worse over time. This is called the Austrian business cycle theory. Then you could look at Bitcoin as a form of money that can't be printed and property that can't be violated as an insurance policy on that entire house of cards. It's funny. It's kind of like all the system is built on that way. If you look at companies, you know, they keep raising money, keep issuing more shares, and then you end up looking at a company that's got billions of shares and the value of the share is nothing, right? But it's very small. And all the financial system is uh, is built on that. Is that's a great analogy actually. At least when you print new shares, you're diluting all the shareholders equally. Yeah. True. Presumably. Now, there's obviously, there's different classes of shares and every company has different cap table um, covenants and all these things. But typically, when you issue new shares, all the shareholders are debased equally. Okay. Money is basically a... So if a, a company stock certificate, which is a, a share, uh, equity unit in a company, is basically representative representative of a share of that company's capital stock. By way of analogy, we could say that money is just a share in the global capital stock. Yeah. So when you print new units of money, you would want to dilute everyone equally. And what that would be, if you did it that way, is like, okay, you have $1,000 in your bank account. 
tomorrow you have 2000 right? That would be the actual way to print money in a fair way, let's say. It would be like a stock split, basically. You just yeah. you double everyone's money supply. But that's not how it's done at all, right? The money's printed at the top. It's given to political insiders. First of all, central bank shareholders benefit right out of the gate. The money isn't printed technically. It's loaned into existence. Central bank buys U.S. government debt. U.S. government pays central bank interest. So before the money has even left the gates, central banks have already profited via seniorage and via interest uh, interest revenue. Then that money is spent from the top down. So it's this is the Cantillon effect. Those who receive the newly printed money first benefit at the expense of those who receive the newly printed money last. So I just wanted to honor that uh, brilliant analogy you brought up. If you're going to print new shares, everyone should share the debasement equally. Why isn't the monetary system that way? Why do we have a few people benefiting from the debasement while the many people are being hurt by the debasement? So it's not an equal dilution. And then, uh, yeah, and then what they do, and then they change the share structure again. So it's- We're always printing more money. Yeah, so yeah, no, exactly. And they can- Literally stealing back. from the poor and giving to the rich. Well, listen, we have got Bitcoin, so <laughs> <laughs> I think it's still a long to go, but uh, it's more, uh, you know, it's really important that more people start to understand the importance and you know you're doing a fantastic job in actually going deeper under the surface you know and uh, explaining yeah. uh, you know the core values uh, the fundamentals uh, that people should actually take the time to understand before you know getting even to bitcoin because otherwise they will never understand it properly so robert such a pleasure to have you back on the show Steffi, thank you for having me very fun and thank you for the work you've been doing as well <laughs>